Ah, so welcome to the Movie Heaven, Movie Hell podcast extra with me, Simon Aiken, and and I'm Keith Isles, and I'm really pleased to say that uh, we have a very special guest joining us from California today. Um, we have Kenneth Johnson, who is uh, a very uh, Emmy Award-winning uh, television writer, director, producer, series developer, etc. That was, um, along with Glenn Larson and Donald Belisario, was uh, one of the influential n- names when I was, uh, was growing up. So welcome, Kenneth Johnson. Thank you, guys, and please, it's Kenny. Uh, my my father's name was Kenneth Johnson. I was a, uh, a junior, so I was always known by the family as Kenny, and that sort of stuck. And all of my uh, family and friends and crew and cast always call me Kenny. At least that's what they call me to my face. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, behind the screen scenes, I'm you know I'm never too sure, but uh, but it's always been Kenny. <laughs> well, thank you, Kenny. Well, we're very pleased to uh, to have you join us today. Um, I know, I know myself and Simon, we often talk about in these podcast extras, um, things that inspired us and sort of got us into becoming, uh, filmmakers ourselves. And, um, one of the things, you, you know, television series, both in the past and even nowadays, uh, are as influential to us as, um, as, as movies themselves. And, uh, like I said, um, myself and Simon, we were both born in the 70s. So uh, we kind of grew up watching reruns of your work over in the UK and in, 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 I guess, the early 80s. Right, Simon? That's right. Yes. We used to watch The Incredible Hulk and uh, V, even though I don't think we were supposed to be watching V. <laughs> well that's uh it's okay i'll uh i'll take that and i'm I'm delighted that you were there it's a it's funny i, I go into uh, meetings occasionally with uh studio executives nowadays and they go wow man it's so cool to meet you i grew up watching your stuff you know and uh and i, I usually say yeah well i grew up uh, making it you know i was the the at the time i was at universal i was the youngest writer producer director on the lot and uh, incidentally, the lowest paid, probably as well. Um, and uh, but my pals uh, Stephen Bochco and Steve Cannell and uh, uh, and Don Belisario, we, we all sort of thought of ourselves as the class of 1980 at the Universal University, you know. And uh, um, because it really was like doing graduate school with pay uh, when I was there. Uh, when I first started producing episodic television. Uh, uh, it was because Steve Bochco, who had been at college with me, um, introduced me to a guy named Harv Bennett, who was producing The Six Million Dollar Man. And uh, they were in bereft of ideas and in a big hurry for get, to get scripts. And, uh, uh, and that's when I said, well, how about The Bride of Frankenstein? And uh, Harv said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've got this monster sort of man with these, you know, bionic legs and eye and arm and stuff. Shouldn't he have a mate in Elsa Lanchester, you know? And um, uh, and he said, like a bionic woman. And he said, that sounds good. And, uh, you know, and we hit it off. And um, uh, and Harv uh, uh, very quickly uh, invited me to become a producer at Universal. And and I was flattered. But I I, uh, I said, Harv, you know, I, I producing is kind of a pain in the ass. I really sort of prefer writing and directing. Uh, can I just do that? And Harv said, sat me down and said, Kenny, let me explain to you how television works. He said, uh, in TV, the producer is the guy that controls the whole quality of the project. Uh, the producer hires the writer, the producer hires the director. I said, stop right there, Harv. 
I get it. I'll take the job. <laughs> you know? and, uh, uh, and that was, uh, and it was, and it was true. I, uh, I jumped on, on board and, uh, hired myself to, to write and kept trying to hire myself to direct, but there was never enough time to do it because Bionic Woman quickly spun off into its own separate series. And for a while I was writing and producing both series at the same time. And I mean, talk about living in a garbage disposal. It was challenging, but, uh, but I'm glad that you remember it well. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, f for me, um, you know, I, I mentioned in an earlier podcast that we did um, one of my sort of earliest memories and one of the things that got me fascinated about um, television uh, as a child was, uh, you know, some of the latter episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. And um, what they did here in the in the UK uh, was when I when I moved back from the US, which was in the sort of early noughties, around 2000 or whatever. Um, the before I moved to London, the, the first thing I did was uh, buy a big screen TV. And uh, Sci-Fi Channel, they used to do a four-hour slot every day where they had basically Six Million Dollar Man followed by Barnet Woman, followed by The Incredible Hulk, followed by Wonder Woman. And um, they literally, I, I used to record this and they'd have it on every day. And because most of those shows ran sort of three to five seasons or whatever, they, they were all, it was like a syndication package. So they were all in chronological order and they all finished around the same time. But what it meant is uh, within six months, I'd seen everything. And uh, I remember like, for example, I was really, Jamie Summers, who I know is one of your creations, the Barnet woman, I couldn't believe it when she died the first time round in the TV <laughs> show, because I had no idea. When, when I started watching the show, she was already established. Martin Brooks was um, Rudy Wells, and they had all the bionic sounds and everything. So right. to go back and watch the older episodes was was a real education, you know? <laughs> That's uh, well. That's true. I, I don't know. You may have heard or read somewhere else that uh, when I originally wrote the uh, the screenplay for the, the for the Bionic Woman episodes on the Six Million Dollar Man, it started as a single episode, and then they uh, when I handed in the script, they Harv said, "Well, we really like it, but it's too dense." And I said, "What do you mean? I, what do you want me to cut?" And they said, "No, no, we don't want you to cut it. We want you to make it longer." And I said, you mean like, a, but you only have a one-hour show. And he said, well, we're going to do it as a two-parter. I think it was the first time anybody had done a two-parter on a one-hour dramatic show. And I said, that's interesting, Harv. Does that mean I get paid again? And he said, yes. And I was thrilled because it was the only money I had made all year uh, that year. It, was, it had been a really dry year. Um, and, um, uh, and in my original con conceit, she died. At, uh, she, she, I kept her alive at the end. Uh, sort of a deep freeze kind of thing, and uh, uh, just and they said, no, 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 we want her dead. And I said, this is a mistake, guys. You know, it's, it's a great character, and you don't want to just kill her off. No, 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 dead, dead, dead. That was love story, that movie with uh, um, uh, Ryan O'Neill and uh, oh god, what's her name? Uh, who, where she had died at the end of it. It had been a big hit, and so they all thought, oh no, we want to do love story. We she needs to die, and besides, we don't want to have a lot of bionic people running around. And I said, this is a mistake. But they said, no, no, dead, dead, dead. So I killed her off, cerebral hemorrhage, you know, all that. She was, she was gone, gone goose. And then um, the, uh, we started getting letters as soon as the show aired and from all over the country. But the, my favorite came from the head of the psychology department at Boston University who said, how dare you? 
create this brilliant female archetype, this role model for young women, and just so blithely toss her to the under a bus, you know. I uh, and and that impressed the network and the studio guys. But what really impressed them was the fact that when I did the, when we did the Bionic Woman uh, two parter, suddenly the ratings for the Six Million Dollar Man shot way way up higher than they'd ever been before, and so the network and studio suddenly thought. Well, we really ought to continue this as a series. Why, why did you decide to kill her <laughs> off anyway, Kenny? And I, I, I said, that was a stupid idea. Why'd you do that? Uh, to bring her back to life. Okay, guys. So, uh, so I was challenged with creating some sort of you know, uh, biological mumbo-jumbo in order to uh, bring Jamie back. And, uh, and when we brought her back at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the summer, they re-ran um, a $6 million man. And uh, in those days, that was always, you know, they re-ran their summer stuff. And at the end, uh, they, they ran the Bionic Woman and said, tune in next week for the return of the Bionic Woman. And uh, holy cow, everybody in America tuned in. And uh, it got just, it took $6 million man into the top 10 in the rating for the first time and it was so vastly popular that Fred Silverman called me almost immediately and said I want you to spin her off into a separate series Ken and I said uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that because I hadn't wasn't having any time to direct and when you're writing one show it's bad enough suddenly they want you to write and produce two shows at the same time it's like really you know traumatic but uh i uh, i took it on and uh, and was very happy and your reference to the to the sci-fi channel you're right it was so funny they were running sort of somebody told me it was, they called it the sort of the kenny johnson block where they'd run six million dollar man the, they run the bionic shows in the afternoon and then they'd run the incredible hulk in the evening and then on weekends they'd run v and uh, it's always amused me because over the years I've taken them probably a half a dozen different projects and never once have I ever, ever been able to sell them anything <laughs> even though that I was sort of helpful to when they were first getting started so Una, welcome to Hollywood guys I was going to say it sounds like Hollywood's not changed over the years one bit <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. Everybody thinks they have the good ideas, and and that's that's why the uh, you know they tried to revive the Bionic Woman a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, and Peter Roth, who's the head of uh, Warner's TV, uh, was in his office, and he said, "God, we we just saw the the advanced tracking on the Bionic Woman. This is what they do before a show goes on the air. They go out to sort of sample audience awareness of it and how interested the audience is in seeing it, and they call these." the tracking numbers and um and peter said it's tracking like it's tracking humongous it's going to be huge i said peter have you seen the pilot and he said <laughs> no no but it doesn't it doesn't matter the numbers are phenomenal it's going to be the biggest hit show in the history of western civilization you know and i'm saying peter have you seen the pilot and he said no 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 i said peter i've seen the pilot it's not going to work it doesn't work he said what yeah. are you talking about uh, and I said, it has the, 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 the show has no humanity. It has no, uh, humor. It has no heart. And it certainly doesn't have an actress of the quality that Lindsay was when we did it. And they've missed the, they've missed entirely the essence of what made the show popular. No, no, no. It's going to be huge. <laughs> well, it was huge. The first night that it aired, when everybody tuned in to see it, and they saw it, and wow, they all, 30% of the audience, over a third of the audience, actually, uh, was gone the second week. And by the third week, another third was gone, and the show was canceled and crashed and burned after seven weeks. 
And um, and David Icke uh, was the guy that had had created it and produced it. And I don't know David personally, but I have a great respect for him as an artist, and even more respect after the Bionic Woman died because he went out publicly and said, you know what, we blew it. We never knew what the show was about, and it didn't have any humanity or humor or heart. <laughs> and it was like, he's a stand-up guy in my book for being able to uh, to cop to it. You know, so yeah. it was, uh, it's sad well, to I see. mean. They'd come off the success of of adapting very well Glenn Larson's Battlestar Galactica and reimagining yes. that, which they yes, did a great and, job of. But um, oh, yes, I thought they, it was better than the original show by a, by a long shot. Yeah, but they they but, kind of missed the point with Jamie Summers and sort of turned it into a, a, a mission of the week type well, it was, series. Well, it was, yeah, when it was moved beyond that. You know, right. It was bit. sort of they were sort of trying to do alias or Buffy or something and a lot of slow motion at night with her hair soaking wet. And how many times can we see her throw her hair in slow motion? And also the other thing that they did, you know, when you're doing an episodic television show and you're on for several years, you, you usually get to the point where you do the evil twin, you know, and um, <laughs> Uh, and we did it on the Bionic Woman. Uh, Lindsay had a dual role once where she played both Lindsay and the bad person that looked like Lindsay. We did it on the Hulk where there was a, a, a gangster that looked like Bix. And, uh, uh, but in the pilot for the new Bionic Woman, there was Katie, what's her name, who was playing the bad Bionic Woman. And I said, uh-oh, that was another red flag because clearly the people who were producing it and creating it did not trust the show that they had, nor did they trust their leading lady. And uh, uh, it was just very clear that, uh, mm, you know, this is trouble in River City, guys, you know. But uh, it's uh, I, was, I was sorry that it, uh, it didn't uh, do better, but I could see from the from the first moment I saw the pilot, I thought, oh, no, 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 this this is not it, guys. Kenny, what did you think about the remake of V? Um, well, I, 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 it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, there have been a couple of them. First of all, there was uh, after I did the original four hours, there was a six-hour sequel that uh, I had supervised the writing of, uh, but I left Warner's before it was produced because. Um, we came to a, a difference of opinion in terms of the oh, quality, okay. and uh, uh, and it it did fairly well in the ratings, although the reviews were just eviscerating. Uh, for this was the six hour that became known as the final battle or the yeah. final the final bugger, as I refer to it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and I uh, to this day, I uh, you may know I have never seen it uh, except for thirty seconds by accident. Uh, all of my friends who worked on it said that they uh, the studio and the guys who took it over after I left totally changed so much of the script and the intent and the essence of the characters and stuff that all of my friends who worked on it said, Kenny, don't ever watch it. It, it will just drive you crazy. Um, and then one day I was channel surfing. I don't know. This is about five, six years ago. And, uh, and I came across, the, I saw this scene and I thought, oh my God, I know what this scene is, you know? And it was a scene from that we had written for the final battle. And, uh, uh, and I watched them make every mistake they could possibly make in 30 seconds. And I said, oh God, I have to turn it off <laughs> all of my friends were right you know and um uh and they tried then in about 1985 to do a, a one-hour episodic series which again i never saw any of and my friends said you don't want to and uh, and so then the public agreed they tuned out in a big hurry oh and big then, time and, yeah. yeah i yeah. mean and, i mean over here in the uk i, I remember this very well because i was really into it um we had it was in the summer of 1986 so i was on school holidays so i was allowed to stay up to watch it 
And what, right. what they did here in the UK, obviously, this was a couple of years after it was made, I guess. You made it in 84 or whatever, yeah? But they, um, they showed it as a 10-hour uh, miniseries over five days. So essentially what they did was they took your parts one and two for days one and two, and then mm -hmm. for days three, four, and five, they showed the three-part final battle. So they showed it right. all as one sort of epic adventure. Um, and, you know, I, I, as a kid, I, I thought this was absolutely fantastic. But, of right. course, when the, the hour-long episodes came like a year later, uh, right. it was just silly things. Like they did away with the, 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 the visitors' voices that you had. So suddenly any visitor could infiltrate the resistance, you know. Which was, and exact, which was exactly the reason that I created the voices to begin with, because I didn't want that ease of access, you know. Exactly. I wanted to give them a hurdle that they were going to have to get past. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it was, uh, from what I heard, it was just sort of a mess. And then when, uh, uh, they told me that, uh, in 2008, uh, as a matter of fact, that was the, the meeting where I was at with the, with Peter Roth, where he was, he was raving about the bionic woman. Uh, that's when they were planning to try to do their own, uh, uh remake of my original V. Um, and, uh, he just didn't want me to read about it in the trades, uh, since I, I was not going to be involved with it. Um, he, uh, you know, just wanted to sort of let me know about what they were doing and that it really had nothing that much to do with my original, uh, series. Um, and, uh, uh, I said, okay, well, you know, Warner's owns the TV rights, so you have the ability to do whatever you want in television and Godspeed. Um, and, uh, uh the young man who had had the idea um, uh, Jason Hall, uh, called because he was interested in just sitting down and talking to me a little bit about it. And, uh, uh, and a very nice guy whom Warner's, uh, had hired to get them into the video gaming business. Jace had a very good success, uh, up in Seattle as a, as a, uh, as a game, uh, creator and, uh, company maker. But after three years up uh, at Warner's, uh, trying to set up to get them into the video game business, uh, nothing had ever happened. And so they decided, of course, to make him a producer in their infinite wisdom. <laughs> and, and this was a guy, very self-effacing, charming guy, um, whom I walked into the room totally expecting to, to think he was an idiot. But by, by far, he was not. And, and very uh, respectful of, of, of me and the work that I had done and everything. And, um, uh, and he up freely admitted that he didn't know anything really about episodic television or anything, but he had this idea, and he, which he uh, uh, had sold to uh, uh, Warner's and to uh, ABC ultimately. Um, and uh, I, when they told me about it in detail, I didn't think that it was really going to work, but it was not my place to say anything. So I just sort of stepped back and uh, let them go with it. And um, unfortunately, uh, it didn't. Uh, the same, the same, the same fate befell it as had befallen the Bionic Woman, uh, which was there was a huge tune-in on the first night that it aired, about fifteen, sixteen million people, which is a, a sizable audience nowadays. Uh, but the second week, a third of them went away, and the third week, another third went away, and then ABC pulled it off the air for several months and uh, replaced all the writers and producers and then they put it back on and gave it lost as a lead-in which was then their biggest show right mm -hmm. and 
and the ratings for V were even lower than they had been when they pulled it off the air. It was it was really a sad, sad state of affairs. And uh, and finally, it just crashed and burned and and, and it went away. And because uh, uh, it was not what we had set out to do. And uh, no. the good news the good news for me though was that it did attract such a big audience the first night. And the reason for that is because I have discovered a couple of years ago that I own and control the motion picture rights to any remake or movie sequels based on my original uh, miniseries. And um, so Warner's owns the TV rights, but I uh, discovered that I own the movie rights. And you know what happened? Suddenly I had a lot of new best friends. (laughs) Well, again, welcome to Hollywood, you know, and uh, uh, literally all of the major studios, Warner's, Universal, Paramount, Sony, MGM, United Artists, Lakeshore, Lionsgate, had meetings all over town. Everybody, hey, Kenny, sweetie, chicky baby, want to talk to you about doing V. And I, and, um, and I had a lot of meetings, and, uh, and they wanted to, uh, uh, they all made very generous, uh, that's putting it mildly, very generous offers to buy the rights uh, to my original and to have me produce and maybe let me write. But, uh, but as a director, they, they were thinking maybe, you know, Michael Bay or somebody like that. And oh, I, no. No. I, I, I said, uh, I said, no guys, I, I, uh, I really have to be in the director's chair, uh, you know, uh, or, or I won't give up the rights. And so I said no to all of them. And this being Hollywood, they said, okay, okay, we understand. How much money do you really want? You know, and I said, no, no, you don't get it, guys. It's not about money. It's about protecting the quality of my creation. I've seen what happened when other people, uh, even other talented people, got a hold of the Bionic Woman or the Incredible Hulk as the first couple of features they tried to do of the Hulk and just totally screwed the pooch and uh, and missed the essence of it and made disasters of them. And I said, I would rather that V never got made as a movie rather than see it get made wrong by the wrong people and so i backed we i backed away from all the major studio offers and a, a whole lot of money because I, it was never what i was always interested in to storytelling and the quality and on being on the stage and executing making it happen as a director so we've been endeavoring for the last couple of years to set it up as an independent picture with independent private equity financing uh the budget's about right around 50 50 million dollars and um and we're looking for uh, equity partners to uh, uh, to help us make that happen. And uh, and the beauty of it is particularly because I, I also wrote this novel called V, the Second Generation, which picks up the story 20 years later. And we see what's happened after our original encounter with the visitors. And um, so there's enough material in the novel to make uh, at least two sequel movies. So. What we really, what I'm really sitting on, is a franchise of uh, a big science fiction trilogy of three movies based on the original V, uh, for which there is an enormous audience out there still. I get emails by the by the score every day from people all over the world, um, and um, so we know that the audience is there, and we uh, we've just been looking for um, uh, for the funding. Hey, if you guys can help us uh, find the 50 million, you get that money. And it's a, it's a uh, good deal. We have we have we have two or three guys, two or three men and women that are working as finders for us. And the deal, you're laughing. I'm serious here. Oh, we're we're laughing because we'd be lucky if we could raise fifty grand ourselves, let alone fifty well, million. Listen, yeah, but you know that it's. Not, but I'm not looking for you to write me a check. What uh, we're, what, 
what we're looking for is people that can help us find the money because of the basic, you know, the huge uh, intellectual property that V represents and the brand name that it's internationally known. And uh, and listen, whatever money our finders bring in from a equity source, they get five percent of the take. Um, so it's uh, on a fifty million dollar picture you can do the math that's a pretty nice yeah. piece of change yeah. yeah and and that will listen that would help you guys get started and uh jump start so you know if you know somebody or you know somebody that knows somebody eh, listen we're open to uh to uh anybody that can help us get it made the way we want it to get made and the way that i know that the audience wants it to get made it's like when Bionic Woman went on the air, I got so many letters from people saying, what were they thinking? Why, why yeah. did this happen? Mm. And the same with the Hulk movies. You know, it was, uh, uh, we were at the premiere, <laughs> we were at the, Susie, my wife and I were at the premiere of the first Hulk movie that was directed by Ang Lee. Very good director. I'm a very big fan of his work and have a great respect for it. But the movie was really terrible. The only line that got a rise out of the audience was the one that I had written as a joke. You know, don't make me, ang <laughs> don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And and it's funny, after the premiere, uh, one of the reporters from Variety uh, came up to me and said, Mr. Johnson, don't make me Ang Lee. You wouldn't like me when I'm Ang Lee. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. It, was, yeah. it, was, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. No, I mean, to, yeah. I mean, you know, we'd love to see a V movie and love to be part of it. But sadly, myself and Simon are, are in the uh, position where we don't even have a track record like you and we can't raise money. So I... I, I I feel your pain on that one. Um, I have to say, I did watch the um, the reimagined V, and I was, you know, very disappointed with it. And I thought they'd missed the point of your show entirely. Uh, it seemed actually more like a remake to me of uh, Quinn Martin's The Invaders than it did V. You know, you know that's, what I mean. It had that's what had, I heard. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, they missed loads. I mean, the only thing I liked about it, the only the only one thing I thought was good is they made it that the skin that the lizards were were, were wearing was um, a bit like they'd done in the Terminator franchise. It was a biological grown skin rather than a rubber skin. And I thought that was cool. But that was about it. Everything else I thought was bad. So <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work at all. <laughs> so um, that's what that's what I'd heard. I only ever saw a bit of the pilot and uh, and that was it. That was all I needed. Actually, once I heard the, how they were going about it, I thought, OK, well, good luck, guys. Um, but uh, but anyway, we're we're holding out to uh, to try to give the public what they really want to see. And uh, and based on all the emails and stuff that I get from people that, are, that have said to me, we don't want that. We want to see the real deal. And uh, uh, and the beauty of, of remaking V as a feature is that it's it's really a timeless story. It's it's not one that has to be rejiggered or reimagined uh, because it's a classic tale like the Spartacus and the revolt of the slaves. You know, any story about an oppressed people that are fighting back, you know, falls into the realm of a, of a classic kind of timeless piece. And so it uh, it hasn't lost its impact. And uh, we have good hope that uh, you'll be able to see it on the screen. That's cool. That's very cool. I was just wondering, where did the idea for V come from? Well, a couple of places. I had read a novel uh, by the American novelist Sinclair Lewis that he'd written in the 1930s called It Can't Happen Here, which was a novel about the rise of fascism in Germany and Italy 
happening in America with the idea, well, it can't happen here, <laughs> you know, and of course it does. And, uh, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if suddenly we had a sea change and, uh, unlike anything that had ever happened to us. And suddenly we were, we woke up one morning in, in, in a different country. And, uh, and my original screenplay was, uh, about a sort of a grassroots, uh, right wing that becomes fascist organization that slowly, insidiously uh, wins its way upward until suddenly we wake up one morning and oops, we're in a different country. And uh, and I was having dinner with my friend Brandon Tartikoff, who was then president of NBC, and he asked what I was doing, and I mentioned this, and he said, oh, "I want to read it." And I said, "No, Brandon, this is a feature. This is not television, you know." And uh, he's he said, "No, let me read it." Let me, and he read it, and he really flipped out for the idea of America under occupation. Uh, but he was, he wasn't sure that Americans would understand fascism. Uh, and I said, well, it's not a complicated concept, uh, Brandon, you know, you put on a black shirt, you shave your head and you beat somebody up. And he said, no, no, but couldn't, couldn't it be an outside, you know, source like in those days, the Soviets or the Chinese. And I said, well, I don't, I don't believe they could sustain a protracted occupation. And, and, uh, I think his vice president, Jeff Sagansky, who later became president of NBC and Sony and a lot of other places, and a long time good friend. But at that point, he was kind of the young guy in the back of the room. How about aliens, Kenny? And I said, oh, no, no. I, you know, because, I, I, you know, I was trained in the classic theater at Carnegie Mellon University, where we studied Shakespeare and Strindberg and Sophocles and Aeschylus and, uh, and the, the theater. And, you know, and I, I uh, you know, you create the bionic woman and then then you slide into the Incredible Hulk, and very soon the pigeonhole that you were placed in in Hollywood gets narrower and narrower. And I just didn't want to do another larger-than-life alien kind of thing. Uh, but uh, but Brandon and Jeff said, "Just think about it. Just think about it. Just think about it." So I went home and I thought about it and I realized, holy shit, they're really right. Uh, I said, I can still do the story that I want to tell because V was never about big spaceships or lizard people or all that. It was about power. Uh, the, the core of V is power. What do you do? How do you react when a uber power rolls into your life? Do you suck up to it like the Vichy French did in World War II? <clears throat> or do you just keep your head down hoping they, hoping they won't bother you if you don't bother them? Yada. Or do you fight back against it like the resistance? did and they of course become the heroes of the piece and i realized that i could still tell exactly the same story that i wanted to tell but have all this visual eye candy of uh, the spaceships and all of that sort of stuff and the intriguing sci-fi element of it. And the fun thing about working in, in speculative fiction or science fiction is that you can work in allegory and uh, a lot. And in, in the real time, the Nazis showed one face to the world and then revealed another face. And I realized I could do that quite literally where they have one face, mm -hmm. oops, but look what's underneath. And, um, uh, and because of that, and because of the, the sort of the historic resonance that I tried to build into it, I think that's what gave it the substance and the depth that made it appeal. Um, as we say on a four quadrant basis, it appealed to everybody, young, old, male, female, and, um, unusual in the world of science fiction. Uh, my audience since the bionic woman through the Hulk, through V through alien nation and virtually all the stuff that I've done like that, my audience has been as many females, often more females than males, tune in. 
And, uh, and that's really unusual for science fiction because it's thought of as, you know, 14 year old boy stuff for the most part. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's great when it has a broader reach than that. And I think it's because of the, that I've always been more interested in relationships and substance than in car chases and spaceships and stuff. That's just, that's just the, 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 the stuff that gets people to tune in maybe, but once they're there, they go, Oh, I mean, a lot of the letters I get from people say I was 10 or 12 or 15 when I first saw V. Now I'm late 20s, early 30s or early 40s. And and now I'm looking at it and going, oh, there was a lot more going on here than I realized. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really good point, because one of the things that's always sort of fascinated me about your work. And uh, as I said, you know, I, I was kind of even as a child, I was trying to understand uh you know what directors and what filmmakers and whatever did and and you, you know you always had created by or developed by you know uh in front of your name and 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 as i said you know revisiting things like the hulk which when i was seven or eight years old or whatever it was i i used to wait every episode you know uh to, to see the eyes change and watch him hulk out and all that sort of stuff but then when i watched it in my 20s right. um I actually found that the that those bits, you know, they were they were amusing and all that stuff. But the thing I was really into, and also because he played it so well, was was the David Banner story, you know, played wonderfully by Bill Bixby. And I sort of found that I'd be watching the episodes and really connecting to that storyline. And I've noticed that with sort of all of your all of your work across the years is they they do sort of work on a multi-layer where, yeah, kids and you know. 10 year old boys and all this can love all the you know the action and the and the spectacle but at the same time you know a more mature um viewer can can kind of buy into those things also and I'm guessing you know looking at the fact that you wrote produced directed created shows developed shows I mean I, I guess you were what nowadays they refer to as a showrunner on, on on most of these these series would that be correct well, yeah, that that the uh, the other sh the word showrunner wasn't around when I was doing it. The executive producer was the guy where the buck stopped. And uh, nowadays, of course, you see <clears throat> television credits that have forty five uh, producer credits on them, and you go, "Wait a minute, who's in charge here?" You know, and <laughs> the person who's in charge is one of the executive producers who happens to be actually there with his boots on the ground all the time. And that guy or woman is the is the person that's charged as the showrunner nowadays. But um, uh, yeah, when when we were doing it back before, there was the 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 staffs were far smaller, and somehow we still managed to get the same work done. I've never quite figured out how we did it with only four or five people, and now it takes twenty. Um, but um, uh, it's. Uh, uh, it's a delight when you can create something and then be able to see it through. Uh, I mean, when I was first asked if I had any interest, Mar Frank Price was running Universal Television. And the Bionic Woman was enormously successful, uh, both the Bionic Woman and Six Mill. They were both in the top three, and I was producing both of them. And so I was sort of the golden boy of the moment, you know. And um, uh, and Frank called me one day and said, we've just acquired the rights to the Marvel Comics superheroes, Ken. Which would you like to do? And I said, gee, Frank, none of them. I just don't uh, deal well with spandex and primary colors, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I mean, I just couldn't connect with the human torch. I couldn't imagine, you know, having a... a a cup of coffee with Captain America in his, uh, you know, it's just, uh, or, or, or uh, and, and particularly 
a couple of, well, I just said no. And uh, he said, well, just think about it, think about it. And I was home trying to figure out how I could really be polite and say no to Frank. And, I, and my wife, Susie, had given me a novel to read that I had never read called Les Miserables. And I was very deeply into Victor Hugo's writing and to the uh, fugitive character Jean Valjean trying to escape from the intrepid Inspector Jouvert. And I thought to myself, oh, rats, there's a way to take a little bit of Victor Hugo and a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde and this ludicrous thing called the Incredible Hulk and turn it into a psychological drama that was really based on Greek classic tragedy where the hero brings down upon his own head uh, the curse that he is then laboring under from then on. Uh, and I went back to Frank and I said, all right, how about this? If I do the Hulk for you, uh, I'd like to do it and I'd do it this way and I need to be left alone and I need to be the one that decides on the casting. I don't want to have some second rate actor shoved down my throat. Okay, Frank, sounds good. Okay, so I want something else in addition, Frank. Okay, what's that? I want to do a, a four hour mini series based on Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. I said, this is a great swashbuckling novel of knighthood and Robin Hood is one of the supporting players and, uh, it's jousting and castles being stormed. That's great stuff. And I've always wanted to do something like that. Sounds good, Ken. You're doing Incredible Hulk, and we'll do a four-hour miniseries of Ivanhoe. Okay, Frank, we shook hands on it, and I wrote the pilot for The Incredible Hulk in about seven days. And... Um, uh, and everybody got out of the way, and I sent the script to Bixby, the one and only guy I sent it to, because uh, I had seen his work on a couple of things that just blew me away. And he came on board, and uh, and we charged ahead, and uh, and the show went on the air, became a huge success. Was really my pilot was released in Europe. You may not know this as a yeah. theatrical feature, you know. And uh, and I got a call from Universal one day, and they said, "Congratulations, you have the top-grossing motion picture in Europe." I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, you're a pilot for The Incredible Hulk. It's, it's made like $15, $16 million over there, which in the 1970s was a huge amount of money, foreign. And, uh, okay, well, I'm glad to know. And uh, But, of course, ask me if Ivanhoe ever got made. <laughs> you know, Frank the Price unfortunately left the studio, and the, the hand wow. that shook my hand was not there to be the hand to write the check when I didn't need it to do it. So, uh, uh, oh, But nonetheless, so we had a good... Well, we had a good time doing the Hulk, and 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 we also we you know we tried to d delve into it. We tried to write the show sort of thematically. We were always looking for the way that the Hulk manifested itself in other people. I mean, in Bixby, his demon was anger. The enemy within was anger. In other people, they had a different enemy within. It might have been alcoholism. It might have been obsession. It might have been greed. It might have been any number of things. And so we tried to write the episodes from that standpoint. And we always were writing for an adult audience from the very beginning on my pilot all the way through the series. Uh, we always saw it as an adult show. And our largest audience was not kids. Our largest audience was women, and then men, and then teens. And um, uh, so we had the perfect demographics, and, uh, and it was a wonderful time. And I still miss my friend uh, Bill Bixby to this day. Yeah, no, he was, he was wonderful. Um, you know, his portrayal was, was, was amazing. And uh, um, yeah, for, for some time in the, in the early days of sort of VHS home video over here, um, many of the episodes were only actually available, sort of edited into feature length movies, you know, obviously including your pilot. But there was, um, right. I think it was the episode called Married, which was the uh, 
season two opener and it was available called Bride of the Incredible Hulk, I think. Yes, that's right. Uh, well, F it was released as a theatrical feature over there. I, I have the poster. Uh, it was not my idea to call it the Bride of the Incredible Hulk, but of course, <laughs> you know, what are they what are they trying to sell? Yeah, and and uh, and Marriott uh, wa was nominated for an Emmy for Best Actress in a Drama Series for that, and she won the Emmy uh, right. for it. And it really startled a lot of people who had not uh, bothered to turn on the show uh, in town. And uh, I remember, I think the Variety review of when when the show aired was uh, said something to the effect of maybe it's happened while nobody's noticed, but The Incredible Hulk has become one of the best dramatic shows on TV. And that was very rewarding because that's certainly what we were we were striving for. And and something else happened too in the course of it. And that's that that Lou Louis Ferrigno. I really worked with him a lot to develop him as an actor because to me a lot of the most intriguing stuff uh happened when when the creature we never called him the hulk incidentally we always called him the creature only jack mcgee the reporter ever called him the hulk <laughs> um and when, but some of the most interesting stuff for me uh was when the creature was coming down from his anger and was sort of that childlike uh you know persona uh and and confused about what was going on around him in the world and everything and and those were intriguing and louis got to the point that he could really play all of that stuff that we would give him uh, very handily and uh, uh it was really really rewarding lou and i stay still in close touch and uh, he's a good friend and he still looks very much the same as he did then my god he's as big as a house and 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 all still the muscles in tone he's great kenny the, the one thing i always um remember about the incredible hulk was the ending each time when you see um Bruce Banner sort of walking off and um you know trying always going off to that music and I just wondered where the idea for that came from um yeah it's it's funny the the the, the musical piece the lonely man theme as we called it um it sort of became iconic in its own right uh, I don't know if you've seen the the, the family guy the animated yes. show uh the the guy who created the show is a huge fan of the hulk obviously because he's always doing send-ups and including one day they did all their credits with their little character walking off into the distance to that music uh, they even cut a main title sequence all animated that's exactly like like the main title sequence yeah, that that's I put great. together, it's yeah. hysterical. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I when um, uh, when Joe uh, Joe Harnell had been with me for worked with me for many years as a composer. Uh, I brought him. I met him back east when I was doing stuff back there, and then I brought him out here to do the Bionic shows with me. And, and when, when we were doing the the Hulk, uh, he said, "What are you looking for? What are you thinking?" Uh, and I said, "Well, look, what I want is is a piece that is melancholy." Uh, that is not sappy and and morose and overly sentimental, but rather that has a melancholia about it um, that uh, that will draw people in. And in, in those days, at the end of every Universal Television show uh, and most TV shows, uh, there, you know, there would be a big full full orchestra score playing off through the credits. And I said, Joe, this is about a, a solo guy going down the street by himself. And it really just ought to be, I think, a solo piano, probably. And, um, uh, and we, and Joe called me and said, okay, I think I got something. And I went over and sat down with him, uh, by on his, on his piano bench and, and he was playing it. And, uh, uh, and it was really, really, really close. And, and as, as always, I started meddling and, uh, Joe, Joe always used to say, I knew just enough about music to be dangerous, you know? And, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, and I said, yeah, it, I think it's really close. I said, what about if this note was, was flat? And I showed him what I meant. And he said, oh, right. I get it. Okay. And he did that. And that's how it ended up. And, uh, um, and as you say, I mean, people hear that piece of music and it just draws them back into the character, into the loneliness, into the, um, uh, into the whole mood that, uh, that we wanted to achieve. And, um, and it really became as iconic as the white eyes or as don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me, you know? And, um, uh, and it was, uh, it was, and Joe did a brilliant job on, on not only on that, but on all of the music that he did for me through, uh, through all the years. Yeah. No, I mean, it truly is a, a beautiful and iconic piece of music and, uh, mm-hmm. and obviously, um, mixing the whole Hulk idea with, um, the sort of fugitive, type storyline i always thought was was pretty genius um what did what did stan lee stan the man lee what 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 were his thoughts i mean did you did you meet stan and and have conversations with him about this <laughs> uh yeah it did stan has been a, an old dear friend for for many 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 years and and has uh i'm so grateful had so many flattering things to say about our involvement together and particularly on the hulk um and um uh i i when i when i i told him early on that i i said look i i want to change the name from bruce to david because i'm trying to get away from comic books stan i'm doing everything i can to to remove this from the comic book origins i mean i looked at the original comic book the only thing i took from it was gamma rays and anger because <laughs> let's see yeah you know, being too close to a gamma bomb okay no i don't think so you know uh, i said i've got to make it as real as possible and also again i wanted to follow the greek line of hubris of uh, of that false pride where the hero is tampering with things better left to god you know and the gods get angry when they do when you do that and and so he has brought down the curse upon himself it was important to me that 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 classic uh, aspect was there uh and um uh and stan got on board uh, he said okay he said i get it uh, i understand you don't want peter parker lois lane clark kent lex luthor i said right exactly i i, I <laughs> how, how it, ironic that you got bill bixby though <laughs> yes, but it's not a crack up yes bill bixby line. <laughs> well, of course it's, it's too perfect and uh, uh but but, but I said, look, Stan, on the tombstone, I'll put David Bruce Banner. So I won't. He said, OK, that's fine. And uh, the bigger the bigger struggle we had, and it wasn't with Stan so much as it was with the studio uh, um, or rather the network in the studio was I wanted the creature to be red, not green. Because I said, what is, why has he turned green? What is he, the envious Hulk? Is he the jealous Hulk? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the color of rage, hello, is red. You know, you're, you're flushed with anger. You know, you don't turn green when you, you know, and, but uh, no, they, they, they stuck. They, and also, for my own sake, red is a human color, you know, much more so than green is. And uh, yeah. it, made, it just made more sense. I was trying to stay as logical as I could. I think the only real, um, and, and Stan was only ever uh, as a consultant on it. He never tried to push or force anything down my throat or anything like that. The only real big argument we had was when I wrote the second two-hour movie, which was called Death in the Family, uh, where I wrote a scene where the creature had a fight with a bear because I'm always looking for worthy adversaries. You know, beating up on a, a man is not, you know, bear, bear is better. Okay. Stan called me and said, I love it. It's great. It's so cool. A fight with a bear is great, but it ought to be a robot bear. 
<laughs> I said, why would that be, Stan? And he said, well, that would be so cool. I have a robot bear. I said, Stan. I said, let me explain. We, you're, when you're doing a piece that's slightly beyond real, you've got to, the audience will only buy so much. They will only give you so many buys. Okay, now we're asking them to buy that Bill Bixby metamorphoses into Lou Ferrigno. I said, now this is a huge buy, Stan. If we put a robot bear into the mix, suddenly we're over the top and we're into comic book land. He said, no, but you do buy, you do robotic stuff on bionic shows. I said, well, yeah, duh. We're in the bionic world where the bionic world is robotics. You know, it's, it's a natural transition to have, uh, have fembots that, uh, you can, you can believe that, but, uh, maybe, you know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but certainly more so than, than, uh, you know, than robotic bears where I'm trying to have this guy in the real world. And we went around and around about it. And, and, uh, and fine. And I happened to have been in, be in New York in March of 80 of 78. Uh, cause I wanted, I had this fantasy of having the incredible Hulk run through times square just to see if anybody would notice, you know? And, um, uh, and so I had gone back with a film crew and Lou to run Lou through times square uh, for a sequence because I really wanted to plant him in the real world and you don't get more real than Times Square, you know? So we were in the middle of shooting that and, and we broke for lunch and Stan's office was just a block over on 6th Avenue and I said, ah, shit, I better go over and talk to him about this bear thing. <laughs> so so I, so I went over and, uh, uh, and and knocked on his door and, and he said, okay, come on, did you get my letter? I said, what, 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 what? He said, oh, I sent you a special letter. I said, I just wanted to tell you that you were right and I was wrong. And I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Should not be a robot bear. You're doing it absolutely right. Just do what you're doing, and it's great. And uh, and that's how my relationship has been with Stan forever. I mean, uh, there were times that he said, uh, it's, it's embarrassing almost to repeat it, but <laughs> that, that he said he, he wished I had done all of his Marvel comic stuff. Uh, and uh, I certainly do, too, you know, for that matter. But, um, but he's, he's a great pal to this day and has more energy than, uh, uh, anybody I've ever met. He's a great guy. Absolutely. Well, I think we're sort of coming to the end, but, um, I would love to know about your involvement in short circuit too. <laughs> well, this came from my friend, Jeff Sagansky, who was the one that said, how about aliens, Kenny, uh, at NBC, Jeff had gone on to become uh, head of TriStar pictures. And, um, among other things, and, and, uh, we'd worked together a couple of times over the years when he was at CBS and, uh, and we would again later after, after TriStar, but he called me one day and said, I got a movie I want you to do. And I said, well, okay, Jeff, I'm, I'm always, you know, what is short circuit too? We're going to do a short circuit. was a good movie. We're going to do a sequel. You'd be great. I said, well, Jeff, I really don't want to have my first movie have a number at the end of it, you know? And uh, he said, oh, come on, read the script, read the script. So I read the script and I said, mm, I don't think so. And he said, oh, come on, come on. And he kept badgering me. And, and, and I, he finally said, look, what's, why, what's wrong? What's wrong with the script? Why don't you want to do it? And I said, there's, there's nothing really wrong with the script, except that right now, the way it stands, the, the, the robot is being, your, your leading man, the robot, is being used like a prop. Uh, you're getting a lot of laughs uh, out of him, and, and they're very funny and some great sight gags. But but what you're missing here, Jeff, is what you've really got is the elephant man. 
And he said, what are you talking about? It's about a little robot. And I said, no, no, no. I know that. But the, what it's about is a stereotype. Don't you see? It's about people can't look past the surface to see the, the real soul that's burning inside him. It's like the elephant man who was, had this terrible exterior and people couldn't see through. And he'd be saying, oh, I'm a man, you know, but they couldn't see it. It's like Quasimodo in, in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, you can't see past the, the horror, horrible visage to the human pure soul. I said, let me rework the script if the writers are up for it with them uh and let me mine all of those human aspects of it all of those those stereotype aspects of it and um uh and we'll still we won't lose any of the laughs or the sight gags but we'll have a movie that will not only have people laughing but we'll also have them crying for this little creature and uh and jeff in his typical fashion said yeah yeah sure go ahead you know and uh, uh and he loved what we did with the script and uh and you know suddenly we were we were shooting and uh uh, and it's true. It was amazing to watch the audience reaction. The critical reaction was also terrific. One critic, uh, said, <laughs> this is a great one. One critic said, it's the best movie sequel since, well, let's face it, since The Godfather Part Two. I said, oh, <laughs> okay, I'll take that. <laughs> you know, okay. It was a, it was a major critic that said it was like astonishing, but the but and sitting in the audiences it was the same thing. They were laughing right from the beginning of the movie, but by the time we got toward the end, where they were having to beat Johnny up, which was a very difficult scene for us all to shoot actually, uh, because we all totally you know I mean the the the, the two the three puppeteers that Jim Henson introduced me to, uh, Rob, Gordon, Trish, who performed uh, the puppetry on Johnny Five, were so brilliant that uh, you, they could be standing two feet away from Johnny and people would be talking to Johnny as though he were absolutely a living creature. And all of us on the set felt exactly that same way. He was, uh, he was a magnificent cr character, a real person. And a strange thing happened when the movie was over it was like I can still call Rob or Gord or Trish and talk to them, but Johnny's gone. You know, it was it was like a friend had died when the movie was over, and uh, it was it was I went, I went through a real period of mourning after it because uh, he was such a real real character that was so alive to all of us, and um, uh, and I still remember him, you know, with with great fondness. It was uh, we had a, we had a huge amount of fun and uh, and fun together, and I think of him as a living breathing character, which you know, is a testimony to their skills and all of our skills in the editing and every place else to really make, bring Johnny to life. And boy, he sure, he sure did. You know, we were, we were something I'm very proud of. What happened to the Johnny five puppet when filming finished? Um, it's funny. Um, I, when we were doing alien nation, uh, Johnny was built by Eric Allard, uh, a genius uh, guy who is really great at all of those mechanics and, and everything. And uh, uh, Eric came back and in, back into my life a number of years later when we were doing Alien Nation and uh, my alien cop uh, had to give birth uh, to a to a baby. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and we had to and we had to create a, uh, a realistic uh, alien baby that would come out of his marsupial pouch in the front. It was quite a quite a show. Uh, and um, uh, and it was it was a combination of Eric's work and uh, and Rick Stratton, our makeup guru on Alien Nation. And as a matter of fact, when when the show aired, we got a lot of hate mail 
from people who said, how dare you put makeup like that on a baby, on an infant? You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I, had to explain, I had to explain that there were seven men and women operating that infant. You know, It was uh, really <laughs> an amazing piece of technology. Um, and, but I was over at Eric's, uh, shop one day while, uh, while we were prepping it and, uh, and, and just going through the, what we wanted it to, the baby to look like. And I was w- walking past and he had a, he had a whole sort of warehouse of stuff of, of things that he had done. And over in the dark corner, I just caught this glimpse of Johnny five standing there. And I looked, I looked away immediately because you know what it was like? It was like going to an, a, a funeral where the casket is open. And, oh, okay. you know, and the person is there, but they're not there, you know, and, yeah. and I, 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 it was, I just couldn't look at him because it was like, no, 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 I, no, I have to, re- I have to remember him alive and, and laughing and making me laugh, uh, and touching my heart the way that, uh, that Johnny five did in the movie. Number so, five is alive. Indeed. Yes. No, absolutely. Yes. Um, on the subject of alien nation, I do have a, 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 a just something I want to ask you about that. Um, I was obviously a big fan of the, the series when it originally aired here in the UK, which was sort of in the early nineties or whatever. Right. Um, I've recently, cause I've not seen them. I've recently treated myself to the DVD set of the five uh, television movies you made as follow-ups and uh, you've done commentaries on them which I'm quite excited about as well Um, I haven't watched them yet because my question is this do I need to go and re-watch the 22 episodes of the series before watching them or can I just dive straight into these TV movies Oh, no, you can dive straight in um, because the first one, Dark Horizon, uh, picks up r- literally where the series left off. We, 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 we were not expecting the series to be canceled uh, because it had gotten such extraordinary reviews. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing. I, Alien Nation, in its original incarnation and in through all of the movies, never got a bad review from anybody. It was the, uh, the critics just sort of adopted us as their little darling, and we loved it, you know. And, uh, and we were... We had we saw that we had a show that had tremendous legs because when Fox first asked me to look at the movie, uh, the feature movie that had been done that had been not been successful, but they thought maybe there was a TV series in it. I didn't want to look at anything called Alien Nation because again, <laughs> I was sort of no, no, no more aliens, and you know, and, and and it looked like sort of Miami Vice with cone heads, you know, when I looked at the movie, and it was it was basically a police procedural with this little patina of alien stuff, and um, uh, and I. I, and I just didn't, you know, they thought uh, I just, I didn't, I didn't really spark to it. And I, I was sitting alone in a screening room at Fox and I was about halfway through and getting ready to sort of just walk away. And then this scene came up where uh, the alien cop waved goodbye to his family. And there was one shot of them in the movie, only one shot, this alien woman and her little two alien kids standing on the porch. And I, then the bell went off in my head and I thought, wait a minute, who are they? And I went back to the Fox guys and I said, okay, you think you've got lethal weapon with aliens, right? And they said, yeah, yeah. I said, no, no, no. What we have here is an opportunity to do in the heat of the night. I said, let me do a piece that's about racial prejudice and profiling and, and uh, intolerance and discrimination. I said, that's something that can go on and, and we can build a, a show around. Uh, and they didn't quite understand it, but they said, okay, go ahead. Uh, and we did, and the critics got it and the audiences got it. And it was, uh, it was really, really, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. I put together a sensational cast. 
podcast uh, with no assholes. Everybody was great, you know, and um, uh, and we were really steaming along and I had already several scripts written for the following season when we got the word that the show was not going to be picked up for for another season. And uh, I still remember Peter Chernin calling me. Um, and uh, saying, oh, Barry Diller, who was then running Fox, said we just he wants to go with comedies on Monday night instead. There had never been anything on Monday night except us. We were the first time that Fox had a Monday night was with us and 21 Jump Street. And he canceled both Jump Street and us and decided he was going to put comedies on because they were going to get bigger numbers. And uh, I said, Peter, this is a huge mistake. And a year later, Peter got up in front of the Television Critics Association after the comedies had tanked so badly that Fox had to give Monday nights back to their affiliates because they had nothing to put on the air and the shows were awful. And Peter <laughs> told the television critics, the greatest mistake we ever made was canceling Alien Nation. And naturally, I was on the phone that afternoon going, so, Peter? You know, and it took me two years of pounding on the door to finally get them to say, okay, you know what? We'll let you make a follow-up TV movie because we had left the series with a lot of cliffhangers. Mm. And, um, I remember. Uh, Yes. And and Andy and Diane, Andy Schneider and Diane Froloff, his wife, had already written uh, what was going to be the first episode. And we took that episode and expanded it out into what became the first of the five Alien Nation movies, Dark Horizon, which became the highest rated TV movie Fox had ever made. So suddenly they were inspired to buy four more. And, uh, and that's how we got the movies. And for all of us, it was like a gift from the gods because we all adored working on the show. We adored the stuff that we were talking about. And, um, uh, and as a matter of fact, on the DVD that you have, there is a special feature called a family gathering. Oh yes. I saw that. Yeah. I haven't watched it, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you should you should absolutely watch it and you can watch it first or last or whenever but but uh i just had every couple of years the the whole gang would come over and Susie and i would have a barbecue for them and we'd all just get together and reminisce and we've all stayed really closely together tied as a family and um uh and i was listening to them at one of the barbecues and i uh, and it was about the time i was about to put together the dvd release and i called them all and i said hey how about you come back and sit in the living room and just talk about it like you were talking about it at the barbecue and so I did. They came to my our living room, and we had four video cameras rolling, and uh, and just recorded them for an hour, and cut it down to a half hour of stuff. My editor Dave Strohmeyer did a brilliant job piecing it together, and it's a wonderful piece. And you'll see why the show was so beloved by all of us because we never stopped laughing. We had so much fun, and at the same time, we were talking about stuff that was important. We were getting awards from every minority in the country thought it was about them, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was just so, so, so rewarding. Uh, we just always end with how people can contact us. So how can people contact you, Kenny? Uh, there's a website. They can Google me, Kenneth Johnson, and it'll almost always come up. Uh, but my website directly is www.kennethjohnson, one word, dot U-S. And that's it. Fantastic. And that's how I found you. So uh, there, yes. right there you go, and uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a contact Kenny or email Kenny link right there, and you can any, anybody can find me, and I uh, and I do take time to answer my email because I appreciate people who take the time to write. Thanks so much, Kenny. You bet. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care.